Please take your Bibles and turn in them to Matthew chapter 6. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. We return this morning to our series in the Gospel of Matthew and our series within the series in the Sermon on the Mount. And we come this morning to the end of chapter 6. We'll consider together Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34. Please follow along as I read Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the fields, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's go to God in prayer together once more. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is your revealed will, your revealed purpose to use in this new covenant age preaching as one of the central means in awakening faith, edifying and building up your people. And so, Father, we pray through preaching now you would please come to us and be our teacher that you would own this means, that you would own this sermon, that through this time together we might better understand your word, and may you please Lord, so work on us by your spirit that we would have greater faith with which to obey it, to follow what it is you are teaching us here. We pray that we would know the heavenly Father of this passage, and that based on our knowledge of your character, our appraisal and assessment of who you are in your nature, we would be helped in all of our struggles against anxiety and worry. Please help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, this may be a very familiar passage to you. If, if I uh, were to quote just the beginning of one of these verses and saying, Con consider the birds of the air, uh, you might be able to fill in the blank with where Jesus goes with that, or consider the lilies of the field. You might know exactly where Jesus goes in this passage. Though it's a familiar passage, uh, to many of us, I briefly would like to observe a few things about it uh, that may escape our notice. I want us to understand and better appreciate what we have in these verses at this point in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has addressed numerous issues so far uh, in this, uh, his most well-known sermon, as he teaches about discipleship and the ethics of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, he's talked about uh, lust and anger. He's talked about retaliation. He's talked about oaths and swearing and divorce and marriage. He comes now to this issue of anxiety and worry, an immensely practical issue. There's just three things right off the bat I want you to notice. Uh, first of all, I want you to appreciate that this passage offers basic, compact, and memorable teaching on the matters of anxiety and worry. Certainly profound thoughts, but Jesus is giving us instruction that is meant to be basic, fundamental, and also compact and memorable. It's not meant here, uh, Jesus does not intend to give us this teaching as an exhaustive or thorough examination of the subject of anxiety, uh, nor does it attempt to answer every objection or a question that might come into our minds as we consider the subject. Jesus is presenting basic thoughts 
on the issue of anxiety and worry in ways that are compact and profound and simple and memorable. A second thing to notice, Jesus intends his teaching to be immensely practical. Jesus is concerned with your everyday life. He's concerned with garden variety, anxiety and worry that faces us all. Jesus is concerned about Monday morning for you. Jesus is concerned about those of you who will come to the meeting tonight. And before we even get involved in our business, you'll begin to get anxious about what's coming uh, Monday morning as you turn around to face another week. Jesus intends his perspectives here not to be kind of theoretical theologizing, but highly practical instruction for how we live our lives and deal with these issues of anxiety and worry. A third thing I just want you to appreciate about this passage before we expound it. I do think Jesus intends his instruction in this passage uh, to be chiefly comforting and helpful and supportive to those of us who struggle with anxiety and worry, which, let's face it, is essentially all of us. We have come into this room an anxious people, covered in all kinds of worries, all kinds of fears, all kinds of anxieties. We are, in many ways, an especially anxious generation. And Jesus, in this passage, intends to be comforting, to be helpful, to support us under the weight of the many anxieties and fears and worries that threaten to disrupt our peace and our rest in God and our confidence and faith in Him. So here we are this morning, a room full of people who have various anxieties. I want to encourage you for the next 45 minutes to allow this text to have its intended effect upon you. Jesus' words here are meant to register with us not only at the doctrinal level, but at the emotional level. Jesus is trying to create for us a sense of the Father's loving care, of his good providence toward us, of his determination through his providence to bring good to us and to care for us such that we need not feel anxiety and worry in our everyday lives. There are two main headings. The second heading will have several subpoints, but the first two headings are, first of all, I want to see the command regarding worry and anxiety. This is the clear command that's stated in this passage. Uh, and then I'd like us to consider helps for those who struggle with anxiety and worry. So first of all, consider with me the command regarding anxiety and worry. The command is simply put, in the ESV at least, do not be anxious. That is the central command of the passage. It's stated in verse 25. It is repeated again in verse 34. And everything between verses 25 and 34 amount to a kind of exposition or explanation of this particular command. The central command is do not be anxious or do not worry. So we have it here first in verse 25. We read, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Verse 25 begins with the word therefore. You always ask, right, what is the word therefore, therefore? Well, it's a connective word. Jesus is carrying on some of what he spoke about in the previous verses, in verses 19 through 24, uh, into this passage now, and it's informing his words now about anxiety and worry. Now, what did we see in verses 19 through 24? A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Brad was in that particular passage. Well, there Jesus warns us against materialism. He warns us against making money into an idol. He says you cannot serve or you cannot worship God and money. He's forcing us to make a choice between treasures in heaven and treasures on earth. And where are we going to find our treasures? Where are we going to invest our treasures? Uh, what are we going to live for? Is it going to be money and material things or will it be the kingdom of heaven and the treasures that are found in heaven at God's right hand forevermore? And now Jesus says, therefore, since you cannot serve God and money, you must choose who you will serve. And presumably, my disciples will choose to serve God. Therefore, don't worry. Don't be anxious about material things. The person who is a materialist, who does worship mammon or money, is consumed with fear and anxiety and care and concern and worry over the things of this world, over material things. Well, Jesus, if in verses 19 20 through 24 is saying, don't worship money, now he's saying, don't be anxious then. If you serve the kingdom, if your treasure is in heaven, there's no need to be anxious about material things, about what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will put on. That's what the word therefore is doing for us in verse 25. So it is, therefore I tell you, and here's the command, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will 
put on. So the command itself is do not be anxious, or some translations will say do not worry. I'd like us to first consider what this command does not mean. Uh, Things we should not impute into Jesus' words here at the level of meaning. What this command does not mean. And there's just a few things I'd like to highlight here. First of all, this is not a command to be carefree and careless and happy-go-lucky and casual and unserious about life. Uh, That would be a distortion of what our Lord is saying here, and it would be a denial of what he says elsewhere. Uh, So if you're thinking Jesus is saying just kind of be light as air, go through life without any care or concern, just be casual, just like get over it, that's not what he's saying. The stereotypical figure in the movie, the kind of drifter who's just going on from place to place, man, I don't got a care in the world. That kind of thing is not what Jesus is commending here. Uh, Secondly, uh, this is not a command to be irresponsible or to take no thought about the future and to do nothing to plan or to prepare for what's ahead of you. Again, that would be a distortion of what Jesus is saying and a denial of what he says elsewhere. Responsible Christians, we understand from other texts in the Bible, uh, should plan ahead, should think about the future, and should allow their notions of what lies before them in the future to inform the way they live now. Our brother Rex Blackburn just preached a sermon where he made the point decisively that Christians are always to be future-oriented people. There's something good about living in the moment, I guess. There's a way we could say that that's a good thing. But the idea that I live in the moment and never have any regard for the future is not what Jesus is after here in this passage. Okay, a third thing I think that is not meant by the command. And I just invite uh, you to listen carefully to this. And I invite your sympathy and charity as I try to address a very complex issue in a few minutes. Okay, whenever you do have an issue of anxiety, uh, immediately people's antenna uh, is up. People read their experiences into what's being said. Uh, please just assess the words themselves that I mean to convey here. Uh, thirdly, this passage is not censuring as sinful every form of what might be called anxiety. I'll say that again. This passage is not censuring as sinful every form of what might be called anxiety. The root word, the Greek word that is used here for anxiety is merimna. Merimna, the verb form would be merimnao. The word occurs many times in the New Testament. It is not a universally negative word in the Bible. So merimna, anxiety, sometimes is decidedly negative, as it is in this passage. Don't have anxiety. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. In other passages, anxiety is actually commended as a good thing to have. Let me show you what I mean by that, okay? Negatively, it's usually attached to the things of this life or the things of the world, anxiety over worldly things, mistrusting God, that kind of worry, that kind of marimna. But there are other passages where the very same word is used in a way that is commended. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul is conveying the benefits of Christian singleness. Uh, He says one of the good things about being single is that the single man or woman can have undivided anxiety or care or concern over the things of the kingdom of heaven. He says, but the the married person has anxiety over the things of this life. He's saying there's an undistracted kind of concern we could have about God's concerns if we are single and not married. In 1 Corinthians 12, uh, that beautiful passage about the body, the church is the body and every member is needed, uh, there Paul says that we are to have the same kind of anxiety for one another. Every member should have anxiety or care for one another. And there the idea is that we would be built up, that we would grow, that everyone would belong and be contributing and the body would be growing. There's a kind of anxiety for one another that we ought to have. Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians about his anxiety for all the churches. I don't think Paul is confessing sin there. He's saying, I'm anxious for the churches to be faithful. I'm anxious for the churches that they would not cave under temptation and false doctrine. I'm anxious for the churches that they would persevere and hold fast to the gospel. In Philippians 2, our brother Rex preached on this passage not long ago where Paul is commending Timothy to uh, the uh, church at Philippi. Uh, And there Paul commends him. He says, you should receive him because I have no one like him who will be genuinely anxious for your welfare. The kind of anxiety Timothy had for the spiritual welfare of the flock in Philippi is a commendable kind of anxiety. 
So with that bit of context, I'd like to identify two types of anxiety that I think do not come under the censure of our passage. First is the one I've just been describing, and that is anxiety that comes to expression in terms of concern, earnestness, sobriety, anxiousness, care over serious and weighty spiritual matters. David experienced anxiety over his sin. Jeremiah experienced anxiety over the idolatry of of, of the Israelites. Uh, Paul experienced anxiety over the lost. He was anxious that men and women might be saved, that they might believe. We've got to be careful here, but I think even Jesus himself experienced a kind of holy anxiety, an earnestness of soul, a concern of spirit when he was in the garden as he sweat great drops of blood as as his hour had come. So I say to you this morning, if you're anxious to see your children saved with a holy concern, they might be spared hell and judgment and might be saved from the wrath to come. I think that's a wholesome and appropriate kind of anxiety. If we are anxious for one another, that we would grow in godliness and that we would be kept in the faith, I think that's a holy kind of anxiety. If we're anxious for the purity and the health of the church or if we're concerned over the loss among the nations, that kind of anxiety, that kind of marimna is not something to be censured but rather something to be commended. And I would just appeal to your common sense here. Do you think that that kind of anxiety, anxiety for unbelieving children, uh, anxiety for the lost among the nations, anxiety for the health of the church body, is that really what Jesus has in mind in Matthew 6 when he says, do not be anxious? I'm going to argue in a moment. He pretty well defines for us the terms uh, that we're not to be anxious about. There is, and please listen carefully, a second kind of anxiety that I don't think comes under the censure or the indictment of this passage. The second is anxiety that has physiological causes at its root. Anxiety that has physiological causes at its root. Now, this is a very complicated subject. I am not a psychiatrist. I want to stay in my lane. I'm a Bible man and a preacher, okay? But I'd just like to appeal to you as we go through this passage, the kind of anxiety that fundamentally has its origin, at least in the first instance, in physiological causes, It's not like the immediate thing Jesus is talking about here. So I just encourage you to think of a few scenarios. You have uh, an individual soldier who did several tours uh, in the Middle East. He's been in combat many times, and he comes home. He's back in the States, enjoying civilian life. He's at a Fourth of July barbecue. A firework goes off, and he has a panic attack. He's in full-on fight-or-flight mode. What is that kind of anxiety? It probably has nothing to do with that man's doctrine or his view of God uh, or his spiritual state. It has to do with the fact that he's been in warfare and there is an instinctive human physiological response to stimuli outside of him, right? Uh, You might imagine uh, someone who has experienced severe trauma in childhood. And later in life, they're in a situation where the associations of that trauma are kind of recreated in some way, and they begin to tremble physically. Well, why are they trembling? It might not have anything to do with their faith or their view of God. It has everything to do with past trauma they have experienced. Now, it may then become a spiritual issue, and they may go to Matthew 6 and find help there. But that kind of anxiety, I don't know in the first instance that it's sinful. Uh, I had a a panic attack uh, on the, the hospital bed. I had been in a severe accident. I banged my head on the dashboard. I had a collapsed lung. They just had uh, operated on me, a very traumatic surgery that I was awake for, and I was on the hospital bed in that staging room before they bring you to your main room, and I started trembling and was anxious at having a panic attack. Well, if you were sitting beside me and you said, Alex, consider the birds of the air. (laughs) What do you think about the lilies of the field? I probably would have kicked you in the jaw. My head was swimming. I don't think it was placed back in its spot yet. And I was traumatized through what I had experienced. It wasn't a matter of my faith or a spiritual issue primarily. It was a physiological issue. It's going to find numerous other examples. You might think of a woman who's experiencing postpartum kind of anxiety or depression in the first month after delivery. She lost a lot of blood. Hormonal things are going on. We're just whole beings. And sometimes different experiences of anxiety and panic that we may have may have as its first cause, physiological or biological factors. And I think we need to be 
discerning about that. Personally, I think we should consider using a different word to describe that kind of thing, because I don't think when the Bible talks about anxiety, that's in the first instance what it has in view. If you want to learn more about that or think more about that or know how this church thinks about that kind of anxiety, Nathan Streer and I recently completed a 10-week class on anxiety and depression. All those classes are online. All right, these are the things I don't think the text is primarily speaking to. With all of that said, what is Jesus actually warning against in this passage? I think his meaning is actually really transparent. I don't think it's an especially nuanced point that Jesus is making. It's a very simple and clear, albeit profound, kind of a point. Jesus is addressing typical garden variety, sinful worry over material things in this life. He tells us candidly, do not be anxious. And he tells us what for, what I'm going to eat, what I'm going to drink, what I'm going to wear, if I'll have enough money, what am I going to do about the check engine light? What happens if Jenny doesn't get the SAT score she needs to get into state? What if my boss fires me? What if the medical exam results come back positive? Jesus expressly tells us, But these are the kinds of things we're not to be anxious over, the things of this life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or what you will put on, material everyday things, matters of basic provision, uh, matters of this life. And the command is straightforward. Do not be anxious about them. Do not be consumed with worry about them. Don't be in bondage to anxiety over these things. Don't let them control you. This kind of anxiety... This kind of worry, Jesus is telling us, is sinful. As sinful as lust, as sinful as anger, as sinful as retaliation. This kind of worry and anxiety is sinful. And Jesus is telling us we must not allow ourselves to become anxious over these material concerns. The command is do not be anxious. Now, some of you already are like, oh, great. Now, another thing I need to be anxious about. I need to be anxious about not being anxious. And some of you are maybe thinking, how can Jesus command me to do this? Uh, How can he tell me not to be anxious? Anxiety and worry occur at the level of our thoughts. And I can't control my thoughts, my anxiety, my worry. Like in my mind, anxiety and worry, I assure you, come upon me entirely unbeckoned. I'm not inviting more worry into my life. I cannot control my thoughts. Friends, that is perhaps one of the best manufactured lies in our culture today. That your mind is an ungovernable place. The Bible actually assumes all over the place that we can learn to exercise self-control over our thoughts. With the power of a new nature brought about by new birth and through our union with Christ and the help of the Spirit of God who indwells us, we can learn, we can learn to take command of our thoughts and our minds. We do not have to live in bondage to worry and anxiety and fear. We can, by the Spirit's help, command our thoughts and direct them toward godly ends. As I've said numbers of times, one of the most underrated and under-exercised virtues in the Christian life is the virtue of self-control. We just don't do it. Some of us don't even have a category for that. But Jesus expects that we can take ourselves in hand and teach ourselves to snap out of it. And we're to learn how to preach to ourselves and how to apply truth to ourselves and how to command our thoughts. So I just want to say, Christian, based on the scriptures, you are not a slave to worry. Uh, You don't have to be anxiety's lackey. Your thought life is not ungovernable. Uh, A really good book on this that our brother Scott Showalter introduced to me. I think it's in the book, so I hope it is. A Still and Quiet Mind. Is that in the book still, Scott? Yeah, okay. A Still and Quiet Mind. It's like 12 ways to get a hold of your thoughts or something like that. Probably a better subtitle than that. But it's predicated on the biblical assumption that we can command our thoughts, or at least we can learn to. We can, by God's help, govern the sphere of our minds. It will take striving and effort and work and prayer and meditation 
and bathing your mind in the scriptures and opening up to your brothers and sisters and inviting the help of your pastors and maybe counseling and mind exercises and going on a walk and reading something edifying. But there are numerous tools at your disposal to help you gain control on your tendency toward worry, anxiety, and fear. And again, appreciate the caveats I put on this. I'm not talking about a kind of anxiety and worry that is principally physiological. I'm talking about everyday garden variety, sinful anxiety, fear, and worry. This is the command. Do not be anxious about these things. Hundreds of temporal, material, earthly concerns that face us and call out to us. Some of you have notifications on your phone right now that are causing you anxiety. Every one of us has something. I don't even need to ask you, don't need to ask you to reflect, it's at the forefront of your mind, that thing that I'm anxious about. Well, it might be good in this sermon as we turn in a moment to consider helps for those of us who struggle with worry and anxiety to seize that thing and to think, now how would Christ's perspectives in this passage regulate and condition the way in which I should be thinking about this? How does Jesus want me to think about all the things that call out to me and would threaten to make me worried and anxious and fearful? And brothers and sisters, we can either be those who are in the business of manufacturing 10,000 reasons or excuses for our sin, or we can see our Lord's will revealed in this text and say, I don't know exactly how I'm going to do it, but God helping me, I will see anxiety and worry over temporal earthly things defeated in my life by God's help. I will do it. All right, let's turn now to the second main heading. We've considered the command regarding worry and anxiety and basically what's meant by that command. Let's consider, secondly, helps in the struggle against worry and anxiety. Helps in the struggle against worry and anxiety. What I want us to notice here in this text is that Jesus doesn't just give us a naked command. He clothes it in a series of wonderful rationales and encouragements that are wonderfully warm and tender. You notice that in the passage, right? It's as if, you know, Jesus does do not be anxious, and we, how am I going to do that? And it's as though he sort of gets down on one knee with the children, or sort of puts his arm around us and says, let me help you. Let me show you. Let me give you some handles for how you can begin to overcome your worry and anxiety. And by the way, let me just say, for the benefit of our shared life together as a church, this is how you encourage someone who's struggling with anxiety and worry. Uh, you don't club them over the head with truth. No, you're tender with them. You might think of illustrations that are helpful. You try to bring simple truths to bear that will help them find their way through worry and anxiety. Some people will use this text so often, so much out of keeping with the spirit of the text. You know, like when they bring this text to you, you know how it feels, right? Like, hey, don't worry. Don't you know? Snap out of it. Look at the birds. Look at the grass. Get a grip. Is that capturing the mood of the text? This is an important thing we should try to get right in our Christian lives. When we read the Bible, you don't only need to get right the discrete doctrinal propositional statements that the Lord makes. You should try to understand something of the mood of the text. And some of us, regrettably, only have one mood we know how to speak in. The mood of this passage is comforting. It's dealing with someone vulnerable and weak. And I'll just say it's been my observation, my experience, that people who struggle with this kind of worry and anxiety and fear over the future, they are not usually temperamentally tough and belligerent and brazen and really wanting to rebel against God. Now, there may be sin underlying this kind of worry. It is sin to worry about these things. We're told not to. But those same people are fundamentally, usually, weak and vulnerable. They're like bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. And what's Jesus' method here in this passage? He comes to sort of bind up the bruised reed and support it. He comes to cup his hands around the flame that's about to go out and to help fan it into a greater flame. That's how we ought to encourage one another when we are dealing with someone struggling with anxiety and sin. A very godly older pastor in my life, he pastors a church in the Northeast, uh, gave me this really helpful advice that we've talked about in our elders meetings before. When you are dealing with someone's sin, it is helpful to try to distinguish between two types of sin. Some sin is the result of brazen rebellion and pride. And some sin is more the product of human fallenness and weakness and frailty. 
Both are sinful. Both need to be repented of. But it's the mature Christian who knows, which one am I dealing with? And the kind of prescriptions and the way you talk to someone is going to be conditioned on how you assess and diagnose where this person's sin is coming from. Jesus seems to handle those who are anxious and worried very gently. And I think we should as well. But now I want us to see various helps and comforts that Jesus gives for those who are struggling with anxiety. Jesus wants to show us some of the many ways in which worry hurts us. The ways in which it harms our relationship with God and impairs our ability to live and walk as we ought as his children. So there's seven things, seven helps. I promise to go through them quickly, okay? Seven things that, that we see in this passage to help us, the anxious and the worried and the fearful, all related to worry. Number one, worry fails to remember God's greater gifts. Worry fails to remember, to call to mind, God's greater gifts. Look at verse 25, the second half of that verse. Jesus says, is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? Now there's two ways you could interpret what Jesus is saying there. Many people understand Jesus to be saying, we really shouldn't be concerned about food and clothing because after all, life is about so much more. Don't get caught up in mundane concerns. Set your mind on spiritual things not things of the earth. Well, it's certainly true that we should not set our minds on earthly things, but on heavenly things. And it is true, the essential issues of life are things far more important and significant than food and clothing, but I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I think Jesus is making a more simple and elementary point. He is saying, if God is pleased to give you life itself, don't you think he'll give you everything needed to sustain your life? Like food? Like if God could provide the greater thing, life, air in your lungs, a beating heart, don't you think he could provide you the food that you need? Similarly, if God gives you a body, he created the body, don't you think he also knows how to clothe and cover the body? In other words, if God can do the greater thing, he will certainly know how to do the lesser thing. So the illustration in my head this week has been the idea, you have like a a, a, a heart surgeon world-renowned heart surgeon. You need heart surgery really bad. And here's this doctor. He's going to perform your heart surgery. And you're in the little staging room where you go before they give you the anesthesia where you sign all your disclosures and all that kind of stuff. And you're getting ready and they're prepping you and the gown's on and all of that. And the doctor comes in, the surgeon comes in. He says, look, you're going to be fine. I'm going to be performing open heart surgery, but I know what I'm doing. I've done this a million times. You're going to be all right. Now, listen, before we go into the operating room, I just need to quickly take your blood pressure. By the way, I have no idea, Lai Chao, you could correct me later if this is something that would happen or never happen uh, before a surgery. Um, but so I need to take your blood pressure. And so they hook the little thing up and they do the balloon to kind of tighten it and they're going to take your blood pressure. But he hooks it up and right before he starts doing the balloon to take your blood pressure, you stop in a moment of panic and say, Doctor, you know how to do this, right? He thinks, I'm about to perform open heart surgery. I think I know how to take your blood pressure. I think, if you could tease out the illustration, uh, we're like that patient. Am I gonna have food? Am I gonna have drink? Am I gonna have the clothes and the provision I need? And God's saying, I've given you life. I've given you a body. He doesn't say this here, but I think we can go beyond. I sent my son into the world to die for you. Do you think I know how to give you the most basic provisions? I can provide the food and the drink and the clothing. If God can do the greater thing, which is to give life and create the body, he can provide all that is needed to sustain and support both. Okay, worry fails to remember God's greater gift. Secondly, worry forgets God's love and care. Worry forgets God's sovereign love and care. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? The Lord, in such wisdom, such care and condescension as the master teacher gives us these wonderfully tender and memorable 
illustrations to remind us of his fatherly care. Uh, New Testament scholar R.T. France notes, the simple analogy with the birds and flowers is worth more than many paragraphs of reasoned argument. Like, just like as soon as we get it, of, of course, he cares for the birds and even the grass of the field. And some commentators have speculated he's trying to give them uh, two images such that whether they're looking up or down, you've got the birds of the air, the flowers of the field. Wherever I look, there are tokens and evidence that God will care for his people. Well, how are these analogies supposed to work? Very simple. Kids, I hope you can understand these analogies. He says, uh, look at the birds of the air. And his point is that birds, if you get up in the morning and you open your blinds and you look in your front yard, what are the birds doing? They're all looking for the worm, right? And I promise you, there's an abundance of worms in the ground. They always find them. Uh, they don't, birds don't have barns. They don't have storehouses. They're not like stacking up inventory of worms. No, they just get up in the morning, not especially anxious, they find the worm, they eat the worm, they're satisfied. Oh, the Lord's provided for them. Hey, what about the lilies of the field or the flowers of the field? Uh, they neither toil nor spin. They're not making garments or clothing for themselves. And yet how beautiful is a bright and radiant sunflower. This is gorgeous, just stunning beauty. We've had lots of flowers in our home lately. And uh, there was a wonderful arrangement. My next door neighbor, she's won awards for growing flowers. And, and Jenny was saying just last night, this has just brought so much joy into my life. Look at the beauty of these flowers. Well, as soon as you cut a flower, it begins to die. But even these flowers... How beautiful they appear, how they're clothed, how they're cared for. Now notice how Jesus reasons. He doesn't say, so be like the birds, like don't think at all about the future. He's not saying that. But he does want us to see our heavenly Father provides for the birds. And he says, are you not far more important to him than they are? Your heavenly Father clothes the lilies of the field which are alive today and will be dead tomorrow. How much more so will he clothe you? If birds and lilies don't go without provision, how much more so will God provide for you who are far more precious to him than birds and flowers? Just a quick aside. There are some things that preachers should say every Sunday. There's some things they should say maybe once a year, and there's some things they should maybe say every 10 years. This is more in the every 10-year category, but it's in our passage, so I'm going to say it. The instinct that would lead us to conclude that trees are as valuable as humans is perverse. The instinct that would lead us to conclude that animals should be accorded the same dignity and worth as human beings created in God's image is not just silly and weird, it's perverse. I'm not saying you have to cancel the Instagram account you have for your dog or your cat, though that's super weird. <laughs> but I, I, seriously, the extreme environmentalism that is prevalent to some of our circles today has never had more cover than it has right now. But people who have funerals for trees, you know, or, or act as though a dog dying on the side of the road is the same thing as a human being dying, it's not the same thing. Jesus is emphatic. You are of way more value than animals and trees and plants. Let's just be clear on that, okay? But back to Jesus' main point here. What he is trying to show us is that the Father loves us and he cares for us. And if he will provide for so insignificant and trivial a thing as birds, he will provide for creatures created in his image and more than that, sons and daughters of his. He will care and love and provide for his greater creatures and those who are precious to him. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you, let the text have its effect on you. Wherever you go from now on, let birds and flowers be tokens to you of God's commitment to provide for you and to care for you. All right, number three, we'll move quicker here. Where he fails to remember God's greater gifts, where he forgets God's love and care. Third, very simply, worry is fruitless. Worry is fruitless. Verse 27, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Some translations will say, which of you, by being anxious, can add a cubit to his stature? I don't think that's actually how it should be translated. The idea is probably more like what we have in the ESV, which of you, by being anxious, can make your life any longer? Add a cubit in your span of life. Like you're not going to live longer by being anxious. In other words, you cannot actually accomplish anything by worry. There is literally nothing to be gained by anxiety and worry. Isn't that interesting? So obvious a point. 
But all of our worrying and all of our anxiety, it literally accomplishes nothing. The hours wasted, the sleep lost, the relationships strained, the health and peace forfeited, the needless toil and labor and care, it accomplishes literally nothing. So Jesus is saying, just kind of see your anxiety for what it is. You're worrying about what you're going to have in the future. What's that going to do for you? It won't make your life any longer. In fact, we know now through modern medical breakthroughs that it actually will probably shorten our lives. He says, don't waste your time on it. It's just fruitless. All right, number four, worry is faithless. Worry is fruitless. Fourth, worry is faithless. Look at verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the fields, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus seems to equate sinful worry and anxiety with a deficit in faith. It betrays that you have a little faith, not a great faith. It is ultimately, I think Jesus is saying, a faith issue. And thus, our worry and anxiety can betray our unbelief. So much of our anxiety and worry is evidence of the fact that we don't trust God as we should. And therefore, we become anxious. I wonder if you've thought about everyday sinful anxiety in that way. You can say whatever you want, confess whatever you want, but the truth of the matter is we can often advertise quite loudly by our actions and by our attitudes that we don't trust the Lord as we should. Perhaps we doubt he's really in control. Perhaps we question whether he really is good. Perhaps we don't quite trust his plans for us, and so we hedge and we worry. It becomes a commentary on our assessment of God's character. So in this command, what Jesus is doing is inviting our trust in God. He's inviting our whole-souled confidence in Him. You see, now this, this is important. Our sense of safety and security and composure and peace is tethered to our apprehension of God's character. I think that's the point Jesus is making. Our sense of safety and security and composure and peace is tethered to our apprehension, our comprehension, our understanding of God's character. And therefore, how we feel and how we act will become a kind of commentary on what we think of God's character. Some of the most mature Christians you know who blessedly feel free from this kind of anxiety and fear and worry are so because they've developed a view of God, a faith in a particular God who's sovereign, who cares for them, who loves them, and it begins to permeate their whole life. It registers at an emotional and existential level. And all the safety and security and stability we're meant to experience as the children of God, they begin to experience, and thus, in a wonderful way, begin to get the upper hand over worry and anxiety when those things come to them. For all of us, the way out of anxiety will require enlarged faith in God. When our faith apprehends a greater understanding of his character and his love and his nature, then we will be delivered from the impulse to worry. We will be helped in our anxiety when we comprehend better God's sovereignty and his providence. When we recognize that he knows the end from the beginning, that there are no accidents with God, that he ordains whatsoever comes to pass that he rules the universe with total sovereignty. Oh, I myself may be surprised by all kinds of things that come into my life day by day, but God is never surprised. He is never caught off guard. Will I not trust him? Moreover, he has promised to give me all that I need and to work all things together for my good. We say in the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one, he watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. No, 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 I'm not going to fear. I'm not going to be anxious. I'm not going to become overwhelmed with worry. God has this, and my Father will do what's right. He sent his Son into the world to die for me. I'll trust him with this. I will trust and obey, not because I know how my life is going to work out in every detail, but because I know whom I have believed. 
I have made a judgment and an assessment about the God in whom I've placed my faith. And I have judged his character to be trustworthy. I know that he will do right. And friends, it doesn't squeeze out every problem we have in our lives, but it is meant to have an impact on us. If we, by faith, understand better who God is and what his character and nature is like, we're meant to be helped in our struggles with worry and anxiety. All right, number five. We said worry fails to remember God's greater gifts. Worry forgets God's love and care. Worry is fruitless. Worry is faithless. Fifth, worry is godless. Worry is godless. Look at verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles or the pagans seek after all these things. What's the simple point? Why bring up the Gentiles? Jesus is saying the Gentiles who don't have God as their father, who don't know the true and living God, they worry about all these things. Oh, but you, you have a different worldview. You, you have a different framework out of which you operate. You know God has created all things. You know that God is your Father who is in heaven. You know that he sent his Son into the world to die for you. You have a heavenly Father. And so should there not be some disparity in perspective between those who think this life is all that there is and who are pagan, who have no knowledge of the one true and living God as Heavenly Father, and those that actually have God as their Father know that all His purposes and plans are good and live for the life to come. Like, should there not be a difference in how we respond to the typical anxieties and worries of this life? Don Carson says this, Our worries must not sound like the worries of the world. When the Christian faces the pressure of examinations, does he sound like the pagan in the next room? When he is short of money, even for the essentials, does he complain with the same tone, the same words, the same attitude as those around him? Away with secular thinking. The follower of Jesus will be concerned to have a distinctive lifestyle, one that is characterized by values and perspectives so unpagan that his life and conduct are, as it were, stamped all over with the words made in the kingdom of God. Friends, we've talked about this before. You have someone who believes this life is all that there is. Eat, drink, or be merry, for tomorrow we'll die. You have doctors who will say to you, you know, you have nothing if you don't have your health. And people live that way. They believe that. They act that way. The very worst thing that could happen is for me to die. Then over here you have the Christian who has been saved by the grace of God, who has been united to the Lord Jesus Christ, and who has inherited everlasting life with him. He's a member of the kingdom of heaven. He will enjoy paradise forever with God in the new heavens and the new earth. He need not fear death, nor judgment, nor hell, or a million devils. Should that not have an effect on the way we hear about the cancer diagnosis? I mean, these two people could not believe more disparate things about life. When the stock market crashes, do we respond the exact same way? as people who don't even believe in a God, or heaven or hell? Uh, when, when we receive bad news, does what we believe about the character of God and his plans and purposes and his love for us and the everlasting life that is to come, that our best life is not now, our best life is then, does it change anything about the way we respond to the pressures of this life? This is Jesus' very quick point here. Don't be like the Gentiles. We can understand why they have anxiety and worry. But why should you, the children of God? So I say worry is godless. It betrays. We're not thinking as we ought to. Jesus is saying, think. You're not like the world. You're not secular. You're not pagan. No, we have better truths and realities that should condition the way we react to those things that often provoke anxiety and worry and so many others. All right, number six, we're almost there. This may be the most important point. Worry fails to recognize God as a good father. 
where he fails to recognize God as a good father. Verse 32, for the Gentiles seek after all these things and or but your heavenly father knows that you need them all. We've talked so much about the fatherhood of God in these sermons. There are more references to God as father in the Sermon on the Mount, overwhelmingly so, than all of the Old Testament. God is our father. Father is the Christian name for God. Well, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is sort of proof positive to it. To really see him that way. As a good father who knows everything I need. Before I even ask him. Good father is orchestrating good plans for my life. I don't need to worry. I don't need to fear. You see, we've seen this several times in this sermon. It really has been wonderful to me over these weeks. Jesus really wants we who are disciples of the Lord Jesus and citizens of the kingdom of heaven, those who have turned from sin, put our faith in Christ, Jesus wants you to be assured that God really does love you. That his plans for you really are good. That you are his own dear precious children and he sees you and he knows you and he loves you and he cares for you. That's not sinful presumption to see God that way. It's how he's inviting us to see him. The, the, the Christian who says, okay, here's this, this thing in front of me. I, I'm not anxious about this. My father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. His plans toward me are good. There's no surprises with God, no accidents with him. I, we'll handle this. That's not some kind of presumption or naivete. No, that's a Christian whose mind and life and emotions and attitude are deeply instructed and helped by what has been revealed to be true about God. That he's our heavenly father who knows what we need, who cares for us, whose name is love, and wants us to live and abide in emotional stability and security and warmth and tenderness and intimacy and closeness with him. And I would say this is the main grounds on which Jesus is arguing against worry and anxiety. God is your father. God cares you. And oh, if you could understand his heart towards you, well, then I don't think you would worry and be as anxious as you are. Brothers and sisters, I just, I just encourage you, as you fight your own worry and anxiety, sinful worry and anxiety, I'm not talking about being anxious that your child be saved and earnest about that, that's a good thing. I'm not talking about some PTSD, though you should bring that to the Lord also. Typical, everyday, garden variety, sinful worry and anxiety. You will not be helped without a greater comprehension of the nature and character of God. You have to see him as he is. You have to know him as he's been revealed. And it's only those things that will lead you out of worry and anxiety and fear. He really does love us. He really does care for us. We considered this passage some months ago, 1 Peter 5 or 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your marimna, anxieties, on him, because he cares for you. Even as I read that, I feel chastened. Uh, just this week, got a call, immediately became very anxious about it. And I got off the call, worried, anxious. I immediately went into a waiting room where I sat there by myself, worried, anxious, said nothing to God about it. Had an appointment, got out of the appointment, got in the car, was on the road for 20, 30 minutes, didn't say a word to God about it, felt, you know this, the snowball effect, it's accumulating care and worry and anxiety. I got to my study back here, started working on my sermon on anxiety and worry. <laughs> didn't occur to me to pray about it. And then I got a text from a brother who knew about the same situation I had learned about, and he said, we, we really need to commit this to God in prayer. What a waste. That's three, four, five hours of just accumulating care and concern and worry and anxiety. I didn't voice anything to God. What we're meant to do is just cast all your anxieties on him because he's anxious for you. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. We're supposed to take that accumulating weight and burden and put it on his shoulders. He can handle it. He's our father. He cares for us. Number seven, and I need to be done here. 
for the note takers. Worry fails to remember God's greater gifts. Number two, worry fails to remember God's love and care. Number three, worry is fruitless. Number four, worry is faithless. Number five, worry is godless. Number six, worry fails to recognize God as a good father. Number seven, there is no worry in the kingdom of heaven. There's no worry in the kingdom of heaven. We have a second command that's embedded in the text, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Have done with worry. Citizen of the kingdom, don't need to worry. No, 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 no. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. What's to be our postures, citizens of the kingdom and as disciples of Christ? I'm not worshiping money. I'm not worshiping material things. I'm not storing up my treasures on earth. No, I'm living for the kingdom. I'm storing up treasures in heaven. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. And what I need to do is seek that kingdom. I need to live according to that law. I need to have a life that's marked all over with the fingerprints of the Beatitudes. I need to be one who trusts in my sovereign God who's over all. I need to come to him pure in heart, poor in spirit. I need to trust in him. I need to walk. He's not a citizen of this world, but as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I need to seek that kingdom and live that way. And I need to seek his righteousness that he's revealing to me. I need to live as I ought to live. I should seek first the kingdom of God. Worry, anxiety will take care of itself. I don't need to be worried and anxious over the concerns of this life and the passing cares of this world. My eye is on a different prize. I live for the world to come. My treasures are in heaven. I'm a citizen of a new kingdom. And there is a new ethic and a new worldview and a new perspective that's to govern and dominate and regulate my thinking. I'm not like the Gentiles. I'm not like the pagans. Friends, let's let These truths we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount have their effect on us and may it change the way we live. Jesus is saying, don't be those who become consumed with the mundane concerns of this life and become slaves to anxiety and fear over temporal things. No, rather, seek first God's kingdom. Live according to his righteousness. Cast all your cares upon God and live for the kingdom. Store up your treasures in heaven. Do not be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we confess to you that we would be so helped and so encouraged and so supported if we could see you and know you as you are. Lord, we confess this to you. We're so often embarrassed by this when we live in a way that is not in accord with how you've revealed yourself to be. We pray for all of us. If there are any obstacles or any impairments or any difficulties that are keeping us from knowing you as you are, as the heavenly Father who's sovereign over all, as the Father of your children who cares for us and loves us, please remove these obstacles and barriers. We want to live as we ought to live. We don't want to be consumed with anxiety and worry and fear. We want to be like those. I think it's the Proverbs 31 woman who laughs at tomorrow. No fear in her heart. Father, we pray that as your children, we would abide always in the safety and security and stability with which you have told us you want us to live. We pray that we would have such high thoughts and deep thoughts of your good providence, of your love, and of your provision, that it would begin to affect the way we think about our work or our school or our marriages or our children or the 10,000 alerts and alarms on our phone and in our email inboxes that we would 
See, all of that through this filter and this lens that we have a good God in heaven who is our Father who cares for us, who cares even for the birds of the air, the lilies of the fields. Please, Lord, work in us a greater assurance that you love us and your plans for us are good. And may it begin, Lord, to overwhelm our worries and anxieties and set us free from anxiety and fear. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.